Well, it is a joy to be here, and uh, let's go to, to the Lord with a word of prayer before we look to his word. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your grace. Uh, we thank you for the fact that the gospel works, that our labor is not in vain, even if it looks like it's three steps forward and two steps backward. Um, we thank you, Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ is building his church, and he's building his church even in tough places like New England. And we pray that you would help us to be people that walk by faith and that are willing to do all that we can so that our church is the most effective church that it can be in ministering the gospel to one another and to those who have not yet heard. We just give this all to you. We ask you to bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are many churches in the New Testament, many of which you're familiar, and there's a few that are truly worthy of emulation. So a question, if proclamation could be like any church in the New Testament, which one would it be? You got to pick just one. You say, well, that's not a fair question. Well, I get to ask the questions I'm preaching. If, if you... If you could just pick one, which one would it be? Now, you could say the question this way. From what we know of the New Testament, is proclamation a healthy church? Is proclamation a healthy church? I'm just asking. And if so, do we know why? What's the essential biblical marks of a healthy church? Now, let me suggest that the best way to determine that is to look at the churches in Scripture, and particularly at the concerns slash criticisms, or lack thereof, of the apostles toward those churches. I think that's the best way to try to get a handle on this. And we have plenty of data to work with, don't we? The data probably allows us to quickly rule out some churches, like the church in Galatia. Paul excoriates them in his letter, doesn't he? We don't want to be like those churches. I'm not saying that there was no value in those churches, but that's not the model. That's not the standard we want to shoot for. And probably not the church at Corinth. I mean, Paul needed at least three letters, one we don't have, maybe four, two we don't have, and several visits, and he sent emissaries, Titus and Timothy, to try to solve all their problems. We don't want to be problematic like that. And there are several churches we know from Jesus' evaluation in Revelation 2 and 3 that can quickly be eliminated, chief among them those lukewarm Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. We don't want to be like that church. But that data also gives us some encouraging possibilities. Churches like the church in Smyrna, that was in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, also mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3. The church at Philadelphia, the church at Colossae, and everyone loves the church at Philippi, don't they? What, a, what an encouraging church that was. But as I've studied these churches, as I've looked at these letters that the apostles wrote to these churches, it's hard to see a church more worthy of emulation than the church at Antioch, which was one of the earliest church plants in the New Testament. Now, true, there's no letter from an apostle that exposes the weaknesses of this church, I'm sure they had weaknesses. But when you compare Antioch to the data that we have on all the other churches, Antioch really 
shines. It really shines. And therefore, I think it will serve this morning as a helpful biblical guide, biblical grid for evaluating really any church, including, including here at Proclamation. Now, let me be clear. From all I know, Proclamation appears to be very healthy. And I'm very impressed. And you probably know, maybe you don't, that I am very high on your pastor. May I say that you should know from the many miles that I've tread and the many churches that I've been involved with, you should know that you're very blessed to have a pastor like Steve leading the charge and to have a wife like Linda who's beside him all the way. And that I know because of that you esteem him highly and you esteem the other elders highly as well, as well you should. But still, regular checkups are helpful, aren't they? And as we drill down, using this impressive church in the New Testament to guide us, perhaps God will speak to proclamation and speak to individual members of proclamation about things that you can do to shore up any weaknesses as well as to deepen the strengths. Now, I must warn you, I'm going to ask some searching questions at the end uh, based on our study. But it's only because I love you. I'm not criticizing you. They're questions. And it's because I know that hard questions, though sometimes painful, can be helpful. And I want to be helpful. And that helps all of us to avoid possible blind spots, doesn't it? So let's just consider this an annual checkup. An opportunity perhaps to recalibrate some things, but also an opportunity to rejoice at what God has already done here in the last eight years. Now for sure, it's at least an opportunity to resolve to excel still more as you here at Christ, uh, Christ Proclamation Church proclaim the gospel in Connecticut and beyond. Now my study reveals at least eight, at least five marks, five what I would call essential marks of a healthy church. So turn with me, let's start with the first mark in Acts chapter 11. I'll pick it up at verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene among them who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now this is the start of this church, and I think it gives us the first mark, which is true conversion. Now remember, the church in Antioch was born in the wake of Stephen's martyrdom in Acts 7. These were Jews who fled Jerusalem because of the persecution. Uh, and they began gossiping the gospel everywhere they went. If you read Acts 8 forward, churches were started in Judea and Samaria, which, by the way, fits Acts 1-8, doesn't it? Uh, but also, they started gossiping the gospel in places like Phoenicia and Cyprus, which was an island off the coast, and Antioch. Now, by the way, Antioch 
is in Syria. Now today it's in Turkey. What, what's now the city, no longer called Antioch, is in Turkey. But then it was in Syria. And if you looked at a map and you looked at the Mediterranean Sea, it would be located right in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. So it was just due north of, of Israel. And I want you to notice two things from our text. First, in verses 19 and 20, that these Jewish exiles were speaking the gospel to Jews only. And it, and, and it wasn't until some of those Jewish exiles came from Cyprus and Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya, did they begin speaking to the Hellenists or the Greeks, to Gentiles. Now, we'll come back to that. That's a significant part of Mark number 3. We'll come back to that at that point. Secondly, I want you to notice in verse 21, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. There was a, a great pouring out of the Spirit. A great number were converted. And conversion is a healthy sign of the church. And one of the reasons that conversions are a healthy sign of the church is because what normally attends conversion, like evangelism. You're not going to have conversions without evangelism, are you? They can't believe unless they hear. And it has to be evangelism from everywhere, from the pulpit, uh, in all the ministries, from all the members. Right in our vision statement of Christ Memorial Church, we specify that we want all the members to be evangelizing. I haven't read Christ's proclamations, but I think that's similar. Not just Steve, not just the elders, all the members evangelizing. And when that's happening, you begin to see conversions. We had a multitude of ministries, and probably the ministry that ministered to the believers the most in a most focused way was our life groups. And we had a life group one year, this was about 20 years ago, where seven members of the life group came to Christ. You say, well, you know, didn't, didn't you know they weren't believers? Well, we weren't sure where people were, but they were attending our church. And they came to Christ, and they're still working with, uh, they're still walking with God today. The idea of evangelizing, ministering the gospel pervades all the ministries of a healthy church, as does prayer. You know, we're praying for people. You look in the prayer guide. We're praying for people's salvation. We have outreach ministries where we invite people to come so we can tell them the gospel. We're preaching the gospel on Sunday. We're telling people that Jesus died for their sins. And we're praying that God would use that word and open people's eyes like he did with Lydia and Philippi. So prayer and evangelism, these are very healthy things. And that's what helps mark a church that's having conversions as a healthy church. They're a part of the recipe for true conversions. Now, to be sure, there's a danger when you're seeing a lot of conversions. And we see that danger in the church at Corinth, that bad boy church in the New Testament, which Paul addressed in 2 Corinthians 6 and 7. What's the problem? Namely, it's false professions. And it seems that the church in Corinth was filled with counterfeit faith. So what's the antidote? How do we address that and minimize that problem? Well, I think that leads us to the second mark of a healthy church. Let's pick it up in Acts chapter 11, verse 22. Now the news about them, that is about the church at Antioch and the outpouring of the Spirit, the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. 
And then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The second mark of a healthy church is a dedication to apostolic teaching. Now, this church had its original teachers, those Jewish believers who had fled Jerusalem and prior to that sat at the apostles' feet learning the gospel and now came up to plant this church as God led in Acts chapter 11. And it says in verse 21 that many were converted by these guys preaching and teaching. And then Barnabas, who was introduced way back in Acts chapter 4, son of encouragement, and was obviously deeply involved with the original apostles in Jerusalem, he comes to Antioch. They send him in verse 22. And again, a great many people were added to the Lord, verse 24 says. And finally, Barnabas went off and found Saul of Tarsus. He had gotten converted. People were a little nervous about him, but he had gotten converted. And Barnabas and Saul met with the church for an entire year, and a great many people, the passage says, were taught and edified and built up by these two master teachers of the gospel. They were centered on apostolic teaching. So true conversions flow from good apostolic teaching. Solid edification is promoted by sound apostolic teaching. If we had time, we'd go to Ephesians chapter 4, where it says Christ gifted the church first with apostles, then prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. For what purpose? To build up the church under maturity, under the full measure of the stature of Christ. Apostolic teaching is key to the building up of the body of Christ to make it a healthy church. And when the church is taught well, the third mark will vividly be on display. Let's pick it up in verse 27 of Acts chapter 11. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to all to the elders, the elders in Jerusalem. What's the third mark? Brotherly love. This church in Antioch was made up of true converts who were taught by some of the foremost teachers and evangelists of their day. But more importantly, the church was made up both of Jews and Gentiles. I want you to just stop for a minute here. Because that doesn't evoke much of a reaction from us today, does it? But it would have back then. Jews and Gentiles. As far as we know, this was the first church planted outside of Israel. As far as we know. And perhaps the first church that had a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Now remember, before Peter went to Cornelius in Acts 10, everything that had happened had happened in Israel among the Jews. 
the Jewish believers were keeping to their own. And even after the persecution, as we just read earlier in Acts 11, the Jewish believers only spoke to Jews in Cyprus, Cyrene, and Antioch. It was only after the Jews from Cyprus and Cyrene started talking to some of the Gentiles in Antioch that a great number believed. So for the first time in the history of Christ's church, young church admittedly, Jews and Gentiles are worshiping together. This is an unbelievable breakthrough. An unbelievable breakthrough. And Paul and Barnabas had just spent an entire year teaching them. And then this famine strikes. This worldwide famine during Claudius' reign. He reigned from 41 to 54 BC, uh, AD. So probably in the 40s is when this worldwide famine hit. And the church at Antioch, this diverse church located in Gentile Syria, takes a special offering for whom? For their Jewish brethren in Jerusalem. They take a love offering to help relieve the famine of the Jewish brethren that are in Jerusalem. I want you to just think about that for a moment. I mean, remember when God told Peter to go talk to Cornelius? Do you remember Peter's reaction? You know, the sheets unfurl and all that and unclean animals. And Peter's like, I'm not going there. I'm a kosher Jew. That's not what I do. And then do you remember how the elders responded in Jerusalem after Peter said what had happened? I mean, they're like, whoopee! The Gentiles have come to faith. Is that how they responded? No. In Acts 11, they said, what are you doing talking with an uncircumcised man? What are you doing eating with this guy? Have you lost your mind, Peter? And he relates the whole story. And of course, then they, they can't do anything but say, I guess God has granted repentance to the Gentiles. They're not really receiving this news well. You know, when Jesus talked with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, how did the disciples respond? Are they like, you know, Jesus, you're really teaching us a lot of great stuff about how to reach out across our comfort zone. No. The Jews hated the half-breed Samaritans. They hated him. That's what the text says in John 4. You see, I think we don't appreciate what's happening in terms of brotherly love in this new church in Antioch. It was made up of true converts. They were well taught by the apostles, and now they show the fruit of their work. They take an offering to help their Jewish brethren in Jerusalem. First John says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to love the brethren. How do you know that you've passed out of death into life? Because you love the brethren. In word and deed? I mean, in, in, with word and tongue? No, but in deed, by good works. That's how I show that I love. And they were doing that. This partially Gentile church was performing the good deed of taking up this offering for their brethren because of the famine. And I would suggest to you that this is true biblical social justice. Social justice has to do with what society you're treating justly. And the society that the Bible's concerned about is the society of believers. The society of God's covenant people. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were reaching out to people they probably hadn't even met. 
but who had a need. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, by the end of chapter 12, the offering's been delivered by Paul and Barnabas to the elders at the Jewish church. The mission's been accomplished, and we're ready to move on to the fourth mark. Let's pick it up in verse 24. It said, but the word of the Lord, chapter 12, verse 24, the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was called John Mark. They were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I've called them. And then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. What's the fourth mark? The fourth mark of a, whole, of a healthy church is global outreach. Global outreach. Now remember, the church in Antioch was the first church that we know of to send out missionaries. They were the first church. By God's Spirit, they laid hands and sent out Paul and Barnabas, which means they had a heart for the nations. You know, isn't it difficult to care for people you don't know? Isn't that, isn't that difficult? I mean, who do you care for? Who do you naturally care for? Of course, your families. You know, when I go to church, and there's a number of my kids that still go to the church that I planted, and there's a number of grandchildren running around, I, I confess, I kind of I kind of automatically focus on them. It's harder to focus on other people, and it's really hard to focus on people you don't know, people you'll probably never meet. But this church had a heart for the nations. And they sent Paul and Barnabas out to minister the gospel to the nations. And they went to Cyprus, that little island. Then they sailed up to what's modern-day Turkey. They went to places like Perga and Pamphylia. And then they went to Pisidian Antioch. That's Pisidian Antioch. It's in the Galatian region. And Paul preached there. That's when he turned from the Jews and started preaching to the Gentiles because the Jews rejected what he had to say. From now on, Paul says, I'm going to the Gentiles. The Gentiles rejoiced. And then he went to Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, still in Galatia. And you see, he, the church in Antioch was just serious about making disciples. These weren't places that they were particularly familiar with or had relatives in. They wanted to see the gospel go to the nations. And they sent these guys out. They financed these guys so that they could preach the gospel. And, of course, it was a hard time. John Mark deserted. Uh, Paul was stoned. But the Gentiles came to faith in droves. And then Paul, in attempting to establish the churches, he and Barnabas backtracked, and they appointed elders in every city. And we want to pick it up there in chapter 14 and verse 23. This leads us to the fifth mark. Let me pick it up in verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia, and they came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoke the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Now, from there, they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
When Paul and Barnabas said, had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. And therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses." So they went back to Antioch, their sending church, and they reported the good news about this successful global outreach. And what a delightfully happy time it must have been for this new church to be celebrating this successful mission. But trouble is in the offing, isn't it? There's trouble in the offing. And what is that trouble? Well, it looks like a redux of Acts 11 when Peter reported the story of the Gentile Cornelius' conversion. Because now the Jewish Christians here in Jerusalem are not happy with the news of the Gentiles being converted in Galatia. For Paul and Barnabas are not requiring them to keep the Mosaic Law. That's what they expected he would do. Bring them into Judaism. That's what they wanted him to do. So men came down from Jerusalem... Now, you may think, well, now, wait a minute. You said Antioch was north of Jerusalem. So how do men come down? Again, remember, where is Jerusalem? It's located on a mountain, Mount Zion. So anytime you leave Jerusalem, anytime you leave the presence of God, this makes sense, doesn't it? You come down. If you're with God and you leave, you're going down. Uh, and so you're going down even though it's north. So they go down to Antioch. And these men begin to debate with Paul and Barnabas. They kind of have a, they kind of have a big, they kind of have a big conflict. And as a result of that, the, el, the, the, the church at Antioch decides to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem with some others in order to confer with the apostles and the elders of the church there on this very topic. And you know the story. Acts 15. The famous Jerusalem Council convened and essentially it convened and it essentially ruled that faith alone was sufficient and all that was necessary to be saved. And letters were then sent to all the churches saying as much. Now, here we observe the fifth sign, gospel protection. I'm wondering if you caught how proactive this church at Antioch was when it confronted a threat to the gospel. I mean, it's just a, it's a new church. It may be only been in existence four or five years. And it perceives this threat, boom! It sends these guys out. In fact, this Jerusalem council, for all intents and purposes, was initiated by the Antiochian church. I would say by the elders of that church who sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to convene with the, uh, with the elders there and to rule on this issue. Now, I, I, I slipped elders in there, didn't I? We hadn't talked about elders of the Antiochian church. You say, well, Wes, are the elders mentioned explicitly in, in the book of Acts? I know that's the question you had when you came here this morning. What I want to know is were the elders explicitly mentioned I'm, I'm, I'm holding my breath, waiting for Wes to give me the answer to this. Well, I'm going to give the answer. No, they're not. 
They're not explicitly mentioned. But let me suggest to you that they had to have elders in the church of Antioch. They had to have elders. I mean, the church in Jerusalem had elders. We see that clearly in the text. And what did Paul do with all the churches that he founded on that first missionary journey? What's the first thing he did? Appointed elders. They all had elders. And by the way, Antioch was doing elder-like work. There's no question. They sent Paul and Barnabas out, and then they send them out again to this council. So there's no doubt in my mind that they had elders. And the primary job of the elders is to preach the gospel and protect the gospel. You say, well, where do you get that, Wes? Well, let's go to Titus chapter 1. Titus 1. If you go to Revelation, you've gone too far. But it's after Genesis. Titus. I thought I'd wake you up a little bit there. Titus chapter 1. Let me pick it up in verse 7. Titus chapter 1, verse 7. It says, for the overseer, or elder, or presbyter, the overseer, or bishop, all those words are synonymous, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, here it is, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Why, Paul? Verse 10, for there will be many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, sounds similar to Acts 15, doesn't it, who must be silenced. They're upsetting the church. They must be silenced. This is mortal combat, not of a physical nature, of a spiritual nature. And these false teachers must be silenced so that the gospel is guarded, so that the gospel is protected. Elders were those who were to hold fast to the apostolic teaching so that they could exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, like those of the circumcision party in Jerusalem who were insisting on law obedience as a condition for salvation. You see, healthy churches have elders that protect the gospel. Because when the gospel and clear gospel teaching is compromised, all the other marks of a healthy church will also be compromised as well and eventually disappear. No true conversions. Obviously, no apostolic teaching. No brotherly love. No global outreach. And instead of being a healthy church, the church is designated by Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3 as a synagogue of Satan. A synagogue of Satan. And for that reason, we must be clear that protecting the gospel is the anchor mark of these five essential marks. Which is a perfect segue, by the way, to this question. By way of application now, Christ Proclamation Church, with what we've seen this morning from the church in Antioch, how is proclamation really doing? I'm just asking, how is the church 
here in Windsor really doing? And what might proclamation do to promote even a healthier church than it is today? I have some thoughts and some questions. The main thought, challenge, is this, to take stock of your church, both individually, and I would throw out the idea of an elder-led initiative corporately that attempts to do an inventory using these five marks as a starting place. I mean, you may think that all is well, and I've already said to you that I think all is well. I think this is a great church, you know. Sue and I might move down to Connecticut and be a part of it. Who knows? Not really. All those grandkids are up there, you know. <laughs> We're stuck. But I think it's a great church. I'm very impressed with the leadership. I'm just impressed with the priorities and the values that I see here. It just feels alive to me. Everything about it is encouraging. Is it a perfect church? No, because you're here, and now I'm here. So it can't possibly be a perfect church. We just got two reasons right there. But I think it's a good church. But then again, I don't really know. I don't really know. You know, three years ago, I went to, I went to the doctor. I had this lump on my neck. I felt fine. No decrease in energy or anything, and aside from little pot belly. I'm still getting after it with all the sports that our church does. I like to do that kind of stuff. I feel great. But I thought, you know, doesn't hurt to check. Little checkup. So I went and it took them a couple of months, but they finally figured out it was cancer. It was lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Now there's about 3,000 varieties of lymphoma. And by God's grace, the variety I have is very slow growing, he tells me. It's stage four lymphoma. I don't like the sounds of that. But he says it's very slow growing. And uh, I still feel fine. You know, feel, I feel fine today. And he says you'll probably not die of it. But I didn't know I had that until I did the checkup. And so I'm saying, proclamation, don't be afraid to take stock individually and corporately as a church to ask yourself the hard questions. You know, I got to tell you, when I read Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it sobers me as an elder of a church. Because Jesus doesn't pull any punches, does he? And he's not partial to churches that once were doing well, but aren't doing well now. He tells it like it is. In some of the churches, what does he do? He removes their lampstand. Essentially, he shuts them down, and they become synagogues of Satan. So taking stock is a godly thing to do. It's a humble thing to do, to not assume that all is well. Let's take stock. Let's ask ourselves the hard questions. And in so doing, we're going to either find two things, and both of them will be helpful. We're going to find that we need help. We need to make some corrections, some midstream course adjustments, and that's helpful. Or we're going to find out, you know what? It's not perfect, but God's really doing a work here, and we can rejoice and praise God for that. And it's probably somewhere in the middle, you know. So that's my main idea, take stock. And to help you do that, I have some questions that I've prepared. 
These are hard questions. I think you'll find them helpful questions. Just, just listen. And the questions revolve around the five marks. Here's a question. Are we seeing conversions in our church, and are they true conversions, which are marked by lasting fruit, the fruit of brotherly love? Here's another way to get at it. Does, is there an undercurrent of prayer and evangelism in our church? And are our programs oriented to proclaiming explicitly the gospel, whether it's a women's event, men's event, youth event, children's event? In other words, are we burdened to tell people in every context that Jesus Christ, the God-man, the second person of the Holy Trinity, died for their sins, was buried, rose again from the dead on the third day, and simply by faith in his name, sinners can be saved? Is that what pervades all of the ministries at this church? Is proclamation moving into the realm where they're weeping over the souls of their neighbors in Windsor? Or are there just simply more things that have occupied our time? We're preoccupied with jobs and homes and kids. You see, a healthy church is marked by a passion for and an experience of true conversions. That's a really healthy sign. Fruit. Well, how about apostolic teaching? Are the elders at Christ's at Christ proclamation and the staff teaching the whole counsel of God? And are they wed to the Bible and to the idea that Jesus Christ and his gospel are the theme of the Bible? And does that teaching pervade every ministry in the church? to the effect that it's developing an increasing appetite, an increasing desire, and a corresponding increased intention span to be taught the Word of God in various settings. You know, New England is, is a rich, rich Christian heritage. It really is. You probably know that Jonathan Edwards, who is my all-time hero, that he grew up in South Windsor. In fact, I was talking to Steve and Alice between services, they live in South Windsor, and Steve told me he's had his eye on Jonathan Edwards' home. He wants to buy it if it comes on the market. I'm like, okay, you're, you're now my new best friend. Let's, let's, let's talk. Uh, he grew up in that home, and he went, he went to college in, in Yale. He matriculated when he was 13 years old. Started Yale at 13 in New Haven. And of course, you know, he preached his famous sermon in the middle of the Great Awakening, July of 1741. Three exits up in Enfield, Connecticut, centers in the hand of an angry God. This is a rich, rich heritage. Of course, Edwards pastored most of his career in Northampton, uh, Massachusetts. Just go straight up the Connecticut River, you'll run into Northampton. Do you know how long he preached every Sunday? I preach two sermons every Sunday. Two sermons. You know, I'm talking now as an American who has the attention span of a goldfish. <laughs> talking about myself. Do you know how long he preached in each of those sermons? Not two minutes. Two hours. So every Sunday, his congregation, he had about 800 members in that church at its height, sat in an unheated building with all their kids driving them crazy. 
For two hours at a time, they listened to the sermons. Four hours total. Now, I'm wondering if I just took the liberty to go an extra hour this morning. So you think I'm winding down, don't you? <laughs> now, let's say I wasn't winding down, and I just decided I'm just going to keep on going. I'm only at Acts 15. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Surely you want to hear the rest of the story. I'm wondering if when we got done and you went home for lunch, you'd be rejoicing or there'd be a lot of lunchtime grumbling about that guy. Now, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to do that. That would be a surprise. I know that's a bad illustration for that purpose. But do you see what I'm getting at? A healthy church is marked by a love for the apostolic teaching, a love for the word. They can't get enough. Remember that scene in Acts 20, Paul preaches, the guy falls asleep, and he falls backwards, and he breaks his neck. You remember that story? And don't you think that would end the church service if that happened? <laughs> in most churches, it'd be like, yeah, we're done here. And then there'd be a, a review of Paul's preaching because he went so long because it was midnight when that happened. No, no, no. What happened? He goes down. He heals that man. He raises him from the dead. And they go back up and he preaches till dawn. Now you say, well, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's crazy spiritual is what it is. And we want to be like that, don't we? I'm not there. I'm guessing you're not there either. But let's not set our goals so low to make sure we hit them every time. Let's aspire to something that's beyond where we are. Let's aspire to a love for the Word of God. A love for the Word of God is a love for Christ. Because He's the Word incarnate. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we're wanting to do. I lost my place with all that. All right, a few more questions. Um, how about in terms of brotherly love? Is the church here marked by brotherly love? Do you see proclamation as your family? your mother and brothers and sisters, which is how Jesus defined our true family. And are you willingly and happily responding to the needs within the body, initiating when others need help with whatever needs, and even willing to risk a relationship in order to point out sin in a fellow brother or sister? Is proclamation a judgment-free zone on the myriad of issues where the scriptures allow differences, whether it's COVID or Trump or child-rearing policies, are we giving one another grace to be different and not requiring uniformity when the scriptures do not? See, that's love. Or to say it simply, is proclamation practicing biblical social justice, loving the society of believers, even the least of them. A healthy church is marked by brotherly love. How about global outreach? How's Christ's proclamation's heart for the nations? Is the church in general moved by the fact that millions are dying outside of Christ around the world without a single gospel witness? 
I admit, it's hard to care for people you've never met and you'll probably never meet, short of heaven. Is proclamation captivated by the fact that God has entrusted you as a local church with the message of life, which is the only antidote for a condemned and dying world? Are you saying, individual member of Christ's proclamation, are you saying to God, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold, in order to meet the needs of my family here at Christ's proclamation and to get behind the effort to reach the nations of our church. A healthy church is a great commission church, and it's marked by global outreach. And then finally, his proclamation protecting the gospel, examining the scriptures daily, to make sure that every ministry, every teaching, even every sermon accords with the blessed gospel of grace. You remember what Paul said? The, Thessal the Bereans were more noble-minded. What did they do? Paul preaches to them, and they examined the scriptures daily to see whether or not what Paul was saying was in accordance with those scriptures. That's part of gospel protection. Is there a zero tolerance by the elders for punky teaching, for anything that is not in accordance with Scripture, whether by addition or subtraction. You know, I remember the first few years at Christ Memorial Church, probably year two, year three, I got a call from a woman. She said, kind of brashly, she said, is, is Christ Memorial one of those hellfire and brimstone churches? That's just how she said it. And I thought for a minute, I can be kind of snarky. I admit, I felt like being snarky at that moment. But I said to her, ma'am, is there any kind, is there any other kind of church? I mean, I don't want to be known for that. But if I'm going to protect the gospel, I have to preach the bad news. I got to talk about sin. I got to talk about judgment. I got to talk about hell. Because what makes the good news so good is that the bad news is so bad. And the good news is the good news that Jesus has come to save us from the bad news. And I got I to gotta say the whole thing. Even if people don't want to hear that, that's what we've got to say. We've got to say the whole thing. I didn't say this in the first service, but I've got these interns and these residents who came up with me today. We're doing open-air preaching on the University of Vermont. We're doing it every week. And I'll tell you, it's quite it's quite a ride. The responses we're getting, it's quite a ride. You feel like you're on Mars. You really do. But they have to hear it. They have to hear it. So proclamation, are you committed to individually and as a church proclaiming the bad news, which is what makes the good news so darn good? Those are good questions to ask. Don't get me wrong. Please don't get me wrong. I really have no suspicions whatsoever regarding the health of Christ Proclamation Church. Like I said, from what I can see, things are going well. When I think of churches throughout our NETS network and just churches that I know in general, when I think of Christ Proclamation, the Church of Philippi comes to my mind. Maybe you're at a Philippi stage, but you want to get to an Antioch stage. Because Philippi had some chinks. Just read the letter. 
But when all is said and done, I have to confess, I just don't know. I really don't know where you guys are. Looks like I didn't know that I had cancer. Hard questions can be uncomfortable, and yet, as you know, very helpful. Very helpful. So, I'm suggesting you ask yourselves, individually and as a church, if these marks, true conversion, apostolic teaching, brotherly love, global outreach, and gospel protection are yours and are increasing. If you conclude that they're not, or to whatever extent they're not, then of course repent and strive to make improvements. And if so, as I suspect you'll find, then rejoice and give God all the glory and excel still more and pray that your lampstand will never be removed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this church, a church that has encouraged my heart from the get-go. Protect this church. Bless this church. Give this church the humility to ask the hard questions, to not shrink back from sober evaluation and trust that whatever it reveals, that your grace is sufficient to address it. So I thank you for these things. I thank you for your blessing on us as believers in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.